Dan, are they goggle marks I spy there on on your face? I guess you made it skiing then? (laughs) Yes, we did. Yeah, absolutely. And we got a lot of sun. It was lovely. We barely saw a cloud all week. So um, lots of sun, lots of nice um, sitting outdoors, drinking coffee and stuff and lots of skiing. So we were really lucky. It was uh, an absolutely lovely week. Brilliant. And Leo liked the snow? Yeah, I think he was a little bit unsure. So we had to sort of coax him a little bit and getting all those layers and coats on for a little one is quite chunky and sort of constrained. But yeah, no, it was, it was, it went okay. The, the travel is, is, is testing with a little one as lots of people will know, but managed it. And um, yeah, it was a lovely holiday. So yeah, really chuffed. Excellent. And where, where was it you were? Were you in France? Yeah, we were France. So we tend to prefer the big French resorts, but we were in Les Arcs this year. We'd normally been in the past the Three Valleys, but Les Arcs was pretty good. I don't know how I'd review it. It wasn't perfect, actually, for, for, for kids because it had a lot of stairs around the resort. Right. But it had some quite nice features. They, they do like an early morning an early morning skiing session one day where you can go up before anyone else. Ah. And they also have a zip wire, which I accidentally bought a ski pass that included one go on the high speed high level <laughs> zip wire and then sort of thing i had to do it because of sunk cost and all that yeah and it was pretty i got pretty scared but it was fine it was good i was i was pleased myself and I'm, I'm, i survived it so you conquered your fears you learned more about yourself all of that yeah. good stuff yeah yeah you know do one thing every day that scares you kind of thing or at least one thing every year that's what i was telling myself as i was getting strapped in and about to plunge down this uh, steep uh, descent <laughs> And now you've done it, so the rest of the year is easy. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And also, um, what about this weather, Hayes? I'm back and it feels like it's spring, isn't it, dare I say? Spring has sprung. Yeah, I agree. It seems like it's just this week, really. So um, you didn't miss you didn't miss much last week, I have to say. But um, yeah, I mean, it's no wonder, really, that spring has sprung because it is my birthday the day this episode comes out. And it generally has to be spring by my birthday. So Absolutely. Yeah. Well, happy birthday. Happy birthday from, from me and, and I'm sure everyone else. Thank um, you. Not a big one this year, is it? Not a big one. No, no. So I'm, I will be working for part of my birthday, but I'm, yeah, I'm going to stop early and have a nice meal. But yeah, that, that's about it for this, for this year. On to the episode. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Hi, everyone. This week on Investment Uncut, we are talking batteries and we are delighted to be joined by an expert on batteries from LCP's energy analytics team. That's Gurpal Ruprai, a consultant in LCP's energy analytics team. Gurpal, welcome. Hey, Dan. Hey, Mary. Good to see you. Thanks for joining us, Gurpal. Before we jump into the discussion on batteries specifically, could you give the listeners a sense of your role at LCP? Yeah, this is always the most difficult question for somebody in the energy industry is trying to explain what they do. So I'm a consultant in the energy analytics department. So we provide long term revenue and cost projections for investors into the energy industry. So we look across a quite a wide range of asset classes, anything from onshore and offshore wind and solar storage and fossil fueled or hydrogen fueled um, assets. And we support Bayes, National Grid and Ofgem and and the wider industry in looking at and understanding the impacts of policy and regulatory change. And we use our in-house electricity market model, a a fundamentals-based bottom-up model of the energy system to provide that analysis and insight. 
And I suppose at times like this, you're contending with millions of sort of armchair energy pundits as well. It seems like lots of people are suddenly newly experts on energy systems, judging by the commentary online. Yeah, I mean, it's, well, it's a really exciting time to be in the industry with decarbonisation. That was the, the really positive aspect of being in this. But, um, you know, with the current high gas prices and, and the squeeze on consumer and rises and consumer bills, it's obviously taken a, a bit of a different turn. Yeah, and I was, I was being a bit facetious there, obviously, but I can totally see how it's a super interesting, exciting industry to be in. And you must be getting a lot of genuine questions from, from friends and family and stuff about what on earth is going on and, and what you can say about it. We'll get into some of that in a second. Girlpal, why don't you tell us something we should know about you that we wouldn't find on your CV? Unfortunately, our listeners won't be able to see, but you two might be able to. Is, do you know what this is? There you go. It says GURPS on the front. Any ideas? It's quite shiny. It's like a trophy. Or an Aerofoil. Yeah, you're getting close now. I used to work for EDF. I used to be quite close to some of their power stations. So this is the S14 blade from a General Electric 9FB gas turbine, which was given to me. It's quite heavy. So that gas turbine is about two stories tall, massive plant, 450 megawatt gas turbine, which was given to me when I left. But yeah. It was in the bin. They, they got an apprentice to shine it up and, and slap a little pluck on it. And yeah, depending on who you talk to, it's either very, very valuable or not valuable at all. <laughs> well, it's got a huge value in terms of providing nice anecdotes for the start of podcasts. Yeah. So that's brilliant. You're sitting with a piece of a gas turbine blade on your office desk, which not many people can say. So there we go. That's great. Yeah. What a leaving present. But yeah, I was very pleased. They were going to get me a bigger one, but they couldn't really carry it. It's quite heavy, so they couldn't get it on the train down. excellent so Gerpo should we let's talk about battery storage so you and your team released a report which we'll link to in the show notes uh, a couple of weeks ago now I think all about battery storage and and particularly focusing on trends that you saw through 2021 but as a non-expert myself I thought maybe we'd start by taking a step back really take us back to basics on the thesis here around battery storage how does it fit in the wider energy system what do we even mean and maybe a bit about the sort of return profiles that you could expect. Sure. Battery storage, it comes in a variety of durations, typically one hour, two hour, or even four hour durations. And that just defines um, the amount of electricity that it can store. So a one megawatt, one hour battery can store one megawatt hour of power of electricity. A one megawatt, two hour battery can store two megawatt hours of electricity. And these batteries are typically used to arbitrage the price in the day. So when the price is low in overnight periods, when demand is low and they charge, and when the price is high during high demand periods, so between five and seven o'clock in the evening, when people are returning home and doing their cooking, turning on their lights and have the heating on, and prices are high and they, they discharge and they make a profit from that, that price spread through the day. So that's that's one use case of them. And so they can bulk transfer power from low demand periods to high demand periods or periods of high renewable generation when the price will also be quite low to and periods of low renewable generation when the price again will be quite high. I mean I guess it's maybe really obvious but worth saying is that it feels like there's a much bigger need for them in a grid that's dominated by renewable energy, right? Because of, as people obviously say, the wind doesn't always blow. Sometimes it blows a lot, sometimes not at all. The sun doesn't always shine. And so tiding us over in those times seems even more important than what that would have been in the past, I guess. 
That's right. And as the system continues to decarbonize, we'll become more and more reliant upon these intermittent sources of generation, um, so onshore wind, offshore wind and solar. And because they are intermittent, we'll need to build um, a lot of capacity to meet the um, increasing demand on the system. So um, demand on the system is expected to double between now and 2050 as we decarbonize the electricity sector as we decarbonise the heat and transport sectors as well. So the electricity sector is seen as a crutch for um, some of these these harder um, sectors to decarbonise. Because wind and solar is intermittent, we'll have to actually have overcapacity of of wind and of solar. The the typical load factor for an offshore wind plant is about 50%. So 50% of its output, of its total capacity, is what you can expect as its output at at any given time, so you'll need twice as much. Um, To cope with the excess generation, which can occur when demand is low, but it's very, very windy, and you obviously need to store or curtail that that generation, preferably store it, either using batteries or other forms of of storage. And at times when the wind is, is very, very low, you're going to need a lot of backup generation obviously, to meet these very high demands that we can expect in the future. And so that's going to be um, discharging from batteries or other sources of low carbon or zero carbon generation. I know you're going to come on to talk about other uses of battery storage. Is the one you've described the sort of the dominant one in this in this market, if you like? This is where most activity has been. Sure. So we, we touched upon earlier, there are different durations of batteries and the longer durations of batteries are more suited towards this kind of price arbitrage, price spread approach. They can capitalise on the long and low price streaks and long high price streaks that we can expect in the future. And shorter duration batteries and half hour and one hour duration batteries are more suited towards the frequency, the frequency response markets. So frequency response is a type of ancillary service and separate to the wholesale and balancing markets and whereby batteries, which are able to respond very, very quickly, um, are used to help maintain system frequency at 50 hertz. And so the UK grid operates at 50 hertz. If grid frequency was to fall, your lights would dim and they would go out. It was to increase and the circuit breakers in your home would trip, and again, the lights will go out. And a kind of a common analogy is if you think of a power station as a pump and electricity as water, and the power station can pump electricity to, can pump water to your home, but if it's polluted or salty, you can't use it. And with electricity, you have to have the right qualities of electricity, of which frequency is one of those. Okay, so you're basically saying that the shorter duration batteries keep the system ticking along within sort of sensible parameters, but the longer duration storage is what you need to really make up for the days that are not windy and not sunny sort of thing. That's right. Yeah, that's it. it Exactly. And do those technologies all exist at the moment for the longer dated and the shorter dated type storage? Where are we with, with that? Yeah, so within the recent capacity market auction that took place in February, we saw typically one-hour batteries and two-hour batteries being successful within that capacity market auction. The capacity market is a market whereby National Grid procures new capacity and new generation 
to make sure we've got enough supply on the system um, to cover peak demand over, over winter periods. So we saw just over three gigawatts of new batteries come online, and that's significant. In previous auctions, we've only seen half a gigawatt um, at most come through. So there's been a real shift towards batteries, but these are shorter durations, one and two hours. In terms of the longer durations, um, we see up to four hours being economic for lithium-ion batteries, and then you start to see different storage technologies come through, things like liquid air, compressed air and pump storage, which have a longer, longer duration associated with Okay. And when you say, just a, sorry if this is a really basic question, but when you say batteries coming online and when you talk about a, a capacity market auction, where are these batteries? They're physical things, right? They're, they're not just in the ether. So where are these batteries situated? And do they have to be situated quite near where they're supplying the, the spare energy to? How does that part of the system work? So the batteries, why people have become so interested in them, one of the reasons is and they've got quite a small footprint. They're very easy to install. They effectively arrive in shipping containers. You can attach them to, to some switch gear and then connect them to the grid. But you can go from, from zero to having a battery installed within a year, and essentially, if you've got your planning all lined up. And so they're quite small, quite easy to install, and then they're essentially fire and forget. You can hand them over to an optimizer or a trader and get them to run that asset for you. And but they're located all over the country. What's becoming quite common now is to co-locate them, so to share a grid connection with a solar farm, and that way you, you're not doubling up on grid connection costs and because the general level of output from the solar farm they have a load factor of about 10 or 13%. So the rest of the time you can be either charging your battery using that solar generation, shifting it towards higher price periods in the day or, or acting and, you know, around that solar generation profile. Now, earlier, you referred to the national grid and, and some of the mechanisms they do. And we discussed this a little bit with, with Rajiv, one of your colleagues, obviously, who was on the podcast back in September. We'll link to that. And he gave us some really interesting insight into how the the UK sort of power market, electricity market works. I just want to refresh my knowledge, check I've got it right. So from what I remember him saying was that basically you've got this sort of long-term market for electricity supply, whereby my supplier, which is Eon, will go out and try and secure contracts for electricity from power plants over the long term. But on any given day, it's not a completely guaranteed that that's all going to match off p- properly for the demand. So National Grid have a particular role where any given day, they basically have to go in and say, right, okay, let's actually figure out if this matches. And if it doesn't, they have the role of basically paying some extra to some other assets to get them generating in order to bring up enough demand to make it all balance. Is that, have I got that right? Have I totally mangled what Rajiv would have told us? That's not bad, actually, Dan. That's, that's pretty good. So there's the long-term wholesale market, which your, your supplier will be active in. And that's where, if say they've got residential customers, um, you and me, they will go out and purchase power ahead of time to meet our projected household demand. Um, Generators will be forward selling their power in this market as well. So, and that's that's generally how the wholesale market works. You've got generators selling into that market and suppliers buying from that market. The balancing market is then used close to real time when a generator has to declare its, say, wind generation forecast. Obviously, there's a level of uncertainty into that. 
And when a supplier has to declare their demand forecast for all their customers, there's some uncertainty within that as well. And within the balancing market, that is um, the mechanism um, National Grid uses to ensure any error in wind generation and demand from generators and suppliers um, is netted off, is set to zero, and we ensure that supply meets, meets demand. And that's what gives the business case for batteries, I guess, doesn't it? Because the fact that National Grid are there on any given day, basically paying the highest bidder or the lowest bidder, whatever, for extra capacity is exactly why the case for batteries comes in. Because you, those battery owners want to be there saying, okay, yes, I can supply you National Grid with some extra power today and you're going to pay me for that. That's right. Yeah. Prices in the balancing market tend to be more volatile and more extreme than those seen in the wholesale market. So for batteries, and um, that provides a, a really good opportunity to capitalise on um, very, very high and some wide price spreads. So recently, as, as gas prices have been increasing, we've seen you know wholesale prices increasing. So up to and over £1,500 per megawatt hour when a more usual level be around £100 per megawatt hour and balancing prices going up to over £4,000 per megawatt hour, which is very, very extreme. So the total balancing costs for last year were £860 million higher than in previous years. So that's a a big burden for consumers. Ultimately, the consumer is is paying for all of this. All the balancing costs incurred by National Grid get recharged via the suppliers into consumer bills. Should we maybe talk a bit about, I mean, the paper that you released recently is is all around things we observed or learned from 2021. You've obviously just touched on the high and volatile levels of gas prices. Do you want to maybe give a, a recap on some of the other lessons that you've you've picked out? So I guess one of the things is that batteries are really well placed to capitalise on the current high energy prices. And so we mentioned energy prices got very, very high in 2021. And why was that? So across across 2021, we saw gas prices rise, and that was off the back of Russia and restricting the export of gas and from Russia into into Europe to try to get the Nord Stream two pipeline over the finishing line. And what they were doing was generally only honouring long term contracts established with countries in Europe and the UK, and they were not refilling storage sites within Europe that drove gas prices up as, as we went into the winter period. So September, October, November last year is when energy prices really started to skyrocket. And like we said, um, the wholesale price reached over um, £1,500 per megawatt hour. And those high intraday price spreads are where batteries can really capitalise on the low prices being set by wind overnight, where prices can be zero or negative and high prices being set across the peak of the day when gas-fired generation has to run and it has to burn that for very expensive gas and recoup that cost. Yeah, because from what I understand, there's this funny sort of feature of the current system in the UK where we get a decent chunk of energy from electricity from renewables, which and the cost of those have come way down and are now pretty cheap from what I understand. But the kind of overall cost of the system is driven by the balancing item, if you like, which is often gas. And so it is still gas prices that effectively drive the overall cost that's being paid because they're the one that can pick up the slack when there is extra demand or whatever. That's right. We often talk about a merit order or a stack and the way generation is run in the UK is you dispatch your cheapest generation 
up until the most expensive unit of generation required to meet demand in, in any given period. It's that most expensive plant on the system which is setting prices. And most of the time in the UK when wind isn't blowing and you know the sun isn't shining, that is gas-fired generation. And so gas prices and carbon prices are important to setting that wholesale price and therefore determining the levels of returns for true storage assets. So some of the some of the cost of the system, we talked some numbers just now about batteries being very well placed, but the sort of volatility and the high prices, I guess, leading to quite high returns from a battery storage investment perspective. Is that the sort of trend that we might expect to continue or actually, as we presumably we create more batteries and then there's more supply and then the price goes down because there's more competition? It's almost like it's a free market or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not missing a step there, am I? That is a realistic future sort of possibility. That's right, yeah. So when we look at the balancing market and how deep it is, at certain times you need two, maybe three gigawatts of actions to be taken within the balancing market and to settle any imbalance intraday. At other times, you only need maybe half a gigawatt. And generally, the amount of balancing you need to do is fairly small. And so that market is also quite small. And in the last capacity market auction, we saw over three gigawatts of batteries coming through. And that will flood the balancing market, not just the balancing market, but also and frequency response markets as well. And we'll see the levels of return and drop off as prices become cannibalized and competition increases within those markets. That's still a few years away. So the time is really, really, there's, there's a point at the moment where with the high gas prices, high carbon prices, where battery owners can make very, very high returns, 19, 20%. And, and uh, to Mary's point, I guess, that provides incentive for more, more people to want to own batteries and more batteries to be put online, right? So I, I suppose it is one of the really obvious conclusions of your report that it's batteries, batteries, and more batteries sort of coming, coming along for the next decade kind of thing, batteries all the way down kind of thing. And, you know, one of the government's targets for 2030 is to have 40 gigawatts of offshore wind on the system. And to support that, and you are going to need more storage and to ensure that and renewable generation isn't wasted, but also that the system is secure. And as you get more renewable generation on the system, it pushes those traditional gas-fired generators to the side and they run much lower load factors. And that's where, where batteries can assist the system in decarbonizing by making it much more efficient. You don't need as much wind or as much solar if you've got battery on the system. You can reduce the amount of, of, of overcapacity required. And just on that, I mean, thinking further into the future, and you just mentioned decarbonization, so maybe we just pause on that for a moment so the more we're using sort of renewable type sources the more relevant battery storage might be because some of those sources are I guess lumpy and unpredictable in format are batteries as good as they can be so if you've got a solar farm and you've got batteries to store energy as there's overproduction of energy is that battery currently at its optimum level does it store energy as best it possibly can or is there actually more development for the batteries themselves to evolve into more effective batteries? Are we expecting to see, for example, batteries that are really effective at the longer periods of time? Or do you think four hours is kind of the peak because we're never going to ever design batteries that go much 
further than that? Sure. There are a few different types of battery technologies out there. So what we're looking at at the moment is talking about our lithium-ion batteries, and they're really suited to short durations, so one, two, four-hour durations. They've got an efficiency of about 90%. So they're very, very good in storing electricity. You're only losing 10% in that round trip from charging to discharging. You contrast that with other technologies such as compressed air or and liquid air. They've got an efficiency of about 60%. And then the pumped storage sites, of which we've got few in Scotland and, and Wales, they've got a round trip efficiency of around 70%. And so batteries, you know, lithium-ion batteries are very, very effective at storing electricity. But for longer durations, you're looking at vanadium flow or zinc batteries, which are cheaper to produce very, very large batteries with very, very long durations. You know, lithium-ion is, is quite expensive. One of the concerns that I could see investors would would have is this idea of the technology curve kind of effect. I mean, people often say that a big sort of success story of the renewable energy market in the UK is how the cost of solar, for example, has fallen radically over the last 10 years because technology has just improved so fast. But you know, I think I'm right in saying a lot of solar companies, especially in China and whatever, went out of business early on because they sort of invested too hard into the early technologies, which got surpassed so quickly. And I guess that's probably the same issue that people face when looking at buying an electric car is kind of, is now the right time to take the plunge and kind of invest a big amount of money into a technology where it is today, knowing that things are going to improve a bit in the future? Is that, is that a common worry that you see from investors? And if so, how do you kind of help them understand that? Sure. When we normally look at battery investments, we're typically looking over, say, 20 years, and the capital cost of, of those batteries is is forecast to come down quite rapidly. You know, the, the battery cells we're talking about, they're very, very similar to those that would be used within electric vehicles. And obviously, as electric vehicles get cheaper because it becomes cheaper to produce those, those battery cells, that will transfer through into the battery storage you know, electricity market. But batteries have limited lifetimes. So the batteries we're, we're looking at typically can discharge 8,000 times. So you can get 8,000 full discharges before the performance warranty um, of these batteries typically expires. So that's about 10 or 12 years typically, kind of cycling twice a day, and before they then need to be replaced. And typically, uh, the investment cases we look at, we have one replacement over that 20-year lifespan. But yeah, and within that, obviously, capital costs and incurred for replacing those batteries come down significantly, maybe maybe half. But it sounds like what you're also saying is because the returns are quite high in the short term, there's a trade-off there for an investor. So you, you get involved with today's technology, which won't be the best in a few years, but you're getting it in the ground now and you're profiting from the return straight away versus waiting a few years, costs come down, but you've missed out on the returns. Is that, is that the sort of trade-off that, that's there? Yeah, I mean, at the moment, the returns for batteries are quite high. They're high in wholesale and bouncing markets because gas prices are high and that's fed through into the price spreads that the batteries are able to capitalise on. But they're also high and within the frequency response market. And over 2021, we saw frequency response prices at the price cap of £17 per megawatt per hour, which is very, very high. That's been a primary reason for 
the um, the amount of investment and the amount of capacity that we've seen come through in the latest capacity market. These, these high frequency response prices um, have really driven interest in this market. We don't expect those high frequency response prices to continue because the market is quite shallow and you only need around between half to one gigawatt to cover that market. And we're already at that level. We're already seeing oversupply in in the frequency response market. What we're really seeing at the moment is is a change in strategies adopted by optimizers and traders with with the high gas prices, the high intraday price spreads. We've seen batteries moving away from the frequency response markets into the energy markets to maximize their returns and kind of going forwards. And that's that's what we see. And we don't really see frequency-only batteries or intraday price spread-only batteries that we're seeing to, to maximise returns. It's a mixture of the two. And when you're doing frequency response, you don't really cycle the batteries very much. It helps to push out the overall lifetime of the batteries as well. And that's a, a big bonus. So a sort of argument for diversification, really, which we love in the investment industry. So, yeah, that makes sense. Gopal, should we should we talk briefly about the impact of the situation in, in Ukraine? Because I think there are some humanitarian issues aside, I think that there are some perhaps more obvious implications of the situation and perhaps some less obvious implications. So the one that, of course, in relation to this discussion immediately springs to mind is is prices. So we've talked about some of the reasons why prices were high last year. And of course, I, I guess we've seen that just continue with the with the very recent events. Do they have the obvious impact on battery revenues? So we would expect to see continued high levels of profit from battery storage because we've got high prices of energy or, or have I missed a step there? Maybe let's define what a high price of, of gas is. So typically in the last few years, and the price of gas has been around 40 or, or 50 pence a therm. Towards the end of last year, we saw prices reach over 200 pence per therm. And then very, very recently, due to the conflict, we've seen you know, day ahead prices reach almost 500 pence per therm, actually go over that price level. So it's, it's many, many, many times higher than the normal levels of gas prices that we've seen. Looking into the future where where gas prices are currently trading, it's still above that 100 pence per therm level looking into 2024, 2025. So gas prices and energy prices are going to be high for for the next few years. And suppliers will have to, you know, will be locking those prices in to ensure that they've got sufficient gas for for the consumers. So, yeah, intraday prices will also be very, very high. And the high prices set over the peak by gas-fired generators will remain high, although you might have, again, very, very low prices due to high levels of renewable output in low demand periods. So again, we expect those price spreads that we've seen recently, those very, very high price spreads to be maintained in future years. And do those higher prices speed up decarbonisation? To ask a very difficult question, because they motivate battery investors and other people to bring more batteries online. Is that what you'd expect, or does it just not work that quickly and that, that easily? When I talked about you know, three gigawatts of batteries coming through in, in the last auction, that was the four-year-ahead auction, which delivers in 2025, 2026. But batteries are very, very quick to install. 
So typically, an investor or an owner of these assets will be operating them well before that period. So yes, those high gas prices will mean you'll see batteries coming online very, very quickly in the near future. And yes, it will aid decarbonisation because and when they're discharging over those high demand, high price periods, that means a low efficiency gas fire generator is not producing. And, you know, if that battery was in there, we'd have to turn on some backup generation. That's generally a gas reciprocating engine or one of the lower efficiency in cycle gas turbines and therefore a high level of carbon. And then just to loop back on impact of the conflict on production of batteries, because I think that's potentially the less appreciated angle to this. Could you just explain what the situation is there? Sure. And um, so batteries typically consist of, you consist of you know, an, an anode and a cathode. The anode is typically made from graphite, but the cathode is made up of a mixture of metals. It can be a lithium iron phosphate battery, and that contains no cobalt or nickel, but it does contain obviously lithium and iron, or it can be a lithium nickel manganese cobalt oxide cathode. So obviously that consists of nickel, that includes nickel and cobalt. And we've seen since the beginning of the conflict, nickel prices have shot up and actually a nickel market was paused. And that's because Russia is the, the third largest producer of nickel, just behind Indonesia and the Philippines. We're trying to move away from using cobalt within batteries. It's a toxic metal and the, the sources of cobalt and typically and occur where there are some humanitarian concerns around its production and the conditions in, in mines. And so generally the industry is steering away from these nickel cobalt batteries. But irrespective of those nickel and cobalt prices, Lithium prices have increased, been steadily increasing over 2021, and the conflict doesn't seem to have had much of an impact on lithium prices yet, but Ukraine does have half a million tonnes of lithium oxide reserves, and a protracted conflict could lead to some shortages and an increase in demand, you know, raising lithium prices. So generally, the cost of batteries is, is going up over time. Yeah, so quite a sort of array of different different effects there on, on different levels, I guess. Yeah, both the cost of producing batteries, the returns that batteries can get once you get them onto the grid and the, the future of batteries are all, it's all quite dynamic situation. I was going to come back to something I forgot to ask before, actually, which was sort of changing tack slightly. Just the nature of who are the current investors in these batteries? Are they... Are they the energy companies themselves at the moment, as it was in the early days of solar and wind, who are kind of doing the development and kind of owning them? And are they shifting ownership on to longer term investors? Or how is that sort of working at the moment? Well, when batteries first came in, the energy companies were very keen not to be caught napping. And some of the very, very first battery contracts were nabbed for very low prices from the big six trying to come in and capture and corner this market. So a few years ago, there was a product called Enhanced Frequency Response, which cleared at very, very low price levels with EDF, RWE, and a few other people and trying to corner the market. Now, we're seeing many more independent investors come in, Renko, Gold Street Capital, to name a few. And generally, these investment funds, capital funds, they are the ones that are building out the batteries. 
the big six, not so much. They seem to be remaining focused on onshore wind, offshore wind, and the kind of traditional renewables sectors. Because I guess you can, if we're talking about potential returns on batteries, sort of well into the double figures, which is what we seem to be saying, the cost of capital for those companies is kind of around five percent or something, is it? They can issue debt at pretty low levels. You could see why that makes a lot of sense for to them from a return perspective. Yeah, that's right. I mean, typically the SSEs of this world are focused on offshore wind at the moment. I think they're they're leaving batteries to the small players at the moment. The battery market is still establishing a frequency response and market that we've touched on previously has only been established for about 12 or 16 months. And kind of prior to that, they they have existing generation fleets of gas turbines and coal-fired power stations that they're falling back on. So what we're saying is it could be coming to an infrastructure fund near you, basically. They could be, <laughs> we could be seeing more of these specialist independent funds coming available to sort of our pension fund type clients or other types of investors. Yeah, I really think so. We've had a bit of interest in batteries, but it's mainly been from these more independent funds rather than the traditional big six. Gopal, as we get towards the end of today's episode, I wondered if you could sort of bring together a lot of the strands we've been talking about and let us know what you think I guess, how, how might this market develop over, say, the next year? So kind of a shorter term picture. Sure. So for one, we expect high energy prices to continue. And therefore, batteries are well placed to capture these high prices, which feed into high intraday spreads. But we don't expect the high balancing prices to be as high as they've been over the past winter. And the reason for that is the very, very high balancing prices over you know, at the £4,000 per megawatt hour level were being set by coal generators. And those coal generators are decommissioning this year. So September 2022, cotton will decommission and the remaining two Drax units, two coal-fired Drax units will also decommission. And they will be no longer there to set um, these £4,000 a megawatt hour very, very high prices that will instead be set by um, gas-fired generators who probably won't bid up to the same levels. In recent history, we've seen about £3,000 a megawatt hour from those gas-fired generators. So we expect um, high returns from the energy markets to continue, but not quite at the same levels as we've seen over the past winter. From the frequency response market, which was undersupplied last year, it's becoming, it is oversupplied at the moment. So we expect and the market won't be at the price cap, it will be under the price cap and we'll see a shift from of those batteries moving away and from frequency response on the odd days where balancing prices are very, very high and they can make a quick buck. In general, we expect um, optimizers and traders to be adopting a hybrid approach operating both in frequency response markets and energy markets. Cool. And Gurpal, what's kind of the one big picture thing you'd like listeners to take away from, from this whole conversation? It's very, very complex. The energy market at the moment is very complicated. And um, if you were to look back and try to find or define um, what is a, a normal year, it's very difficult. In 2016, and we saw carbon prices increasing, coal-fired generation starting to decommission before by the wayside. 2018, we had the beast from the east. 2020, 2021, COVID-19, reduced demand levels, reduced gas prices, and we saw 
depressed wholesale um, energy prices. And then, you know, towards the end of 2021 to now, obviously, prices are at very, very high and extreme levels. Going forwards in time, the energy system is decarbonizing and decarbonizing at quite a rapid rate. And modeling that and modeling all the impacts from new renewable generation coming on the system, electric vehicles, hydrogen fire generation, electrolysis, all of these things, new interconnected capacity, all of these things will have an impact on battery returns. And you can't just look back at last year and say, this is a level of return to expect for the next four years. Though there is no normal year, you really need to do some in-depth fundamental modelling. So past performance is absolutely not an indicator of future performance in this area. I think that's where we're getting to. And yeah, it's complex. It's almost as if you need an expert team of consultants to help guide you through it, isn't it, in some ways? Almost like it. Gopal, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about this area? I think we touched on it, is the level of possible cannibalisation in these markets. Even though we've seen three gigawatts of batteries um, clear in the capacity market auction, there's a 20 gigawatt project pipeline you know, at the moment for batteries, and some of that will be coming through. And with that level of battery build-out potential, the risk to returns from cannibalization of intraday price spreads and competition within frequency response markets is a real risk to battery returns. And Gopal, just to finish off then, any any recommendations for us? You know, podcast reading doesn't have to be energy market related. In fact, you know, it's good if it's not. Yeah, The Infinite Monkey Cage, Brian Cox, Robin Ince. I'm not sure if that's been mentioned before, but um, very, very, very good. Well, there's a one, one episode I recommend, which is on whether a strawberry is alive or dead. I don't know. Brian Cox doesn't know. I'm not sure if either of you two know. (laughs) I still don't. (laughs) It's not a question I've thought about before, I have to say. It's not. I'll have to check out the episode. That's great. Yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes. And Gopal, I feel like we have to ask you for a book recommendation because the listeners, again, can't see this, but behind Gopal's shoulder looks to me like a freestanding stack, as tall as a person, of books. Am I right in what what I'm seeing? It's mostly my wife's, but I can give you a book recommendation. The Making of the Atomic Bomb. This is a Pulitzer Prize-winning non-fiction book written by Richard Rhodes. But why I bring it up is I can see you're both, I think you're both in the, in the London office, but the idea of the nuclear chain reaction was you know, thought up by Leo Szilard um, in Bloomsbury as he was crossing the road from the British Museum and just crossing the road next to the British Museum. So barely a mile from our office was where the nuclear chain reaction was initially thought of. And well, yeah, that's had quite the impact to the 20th century, as I'm sure you appreciate. But yeah, very, very good book. Interesting. We'll add that to the show notes too. Brilliant. Well, Gopal, it's been an absolutely great conversation. I mean, my head is kind of just exploding with all this new info I'm trying to digest on the energy market. But thanks for that. And thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. It's been brilliant. Thank you very much. Been a pleasure, Gopal. That's it from us this week on Investment Uncut, but do join us again next week for another episode. Take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.